Buzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the POSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Marek Spinka, who is an assistant professor at the Czech University of Life Sciences in Prague, Czechia. Welcome, Marek. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to hearing lots about your research animals and specifically also play that we're going to uh, touch yeah. on I know is your beloved subject but it's always That's really something. interesting to hear someone's story like how did you come to study animals and work with animals well actually I was not that guy who from very young age knew that I want to work with animals I was quite like broad-minded and at the college, I was really interested in philosophy and theater and languages and mathematics, but also in biology. And it was actually my college um, teacher of biology, who was a very, you know, witty and provocative man who had a broad knowledge of the different varieties of animals and organisms, etc. And this fascinated me. And he always asked even the students when he was examining them, really tough question going more deeper and deeper. And the students were mostly quite embarrassed. So some of them didn't like it, but he really, you know, with that, he opened to me this, this depth in the biology, which I started to be very fascinated. And then I went to, uh, to study zoology at the Charles University in Prague. And, um, uh, and did my master's with um, the territorial behavior of shrews, these tiny, tiny animals, the smallest mammals um, uh, that we have um, in, in the field. And um, then because there was an opportunity, so I started my PhD with, uh, with sexual behavior of, of laboratory rats. But after that, I um, went on a newly started group of um, applied ethology at the Animal Research Institute in Prague and worked for almost 30 years, mostly with farm animals, with, with, with pigs and, um, and, and, and cows. Wonderful. That is just, uh, it's um, always good to hear, you know, someone's story and, uh, yeah, some people love animals and they know that and other people get attracted to it by a mentor or by somebody or something that they that they experience so it's always really good to hear and also moving from tiny shrews to you know i know you've worked with uh, cows and other large animals yeah so that's really wonderful so perhaps you know you work at a university and uh, you teach comparative evolutionary psychology and animal ethics perhaps you could talk a little bit about those topics for listeners who might not necessarily know what could be included in that. Yeah, I think this is actually connected with this, my inclination to, you know, think from different perspectives. So I never uh, really stopped my interest in, in ethics and, and philosophy and human psychology, etc. 
So uh, about 10 years ago, I got the opportunity to start lecturing a comparative psychology for psychology students, undergraduates. And I found it an absolutely fascinating enterprise because I realized how much important the different disciplines can learn from each other. So um, obviously the psychology could step out of the beloved, you know, school of thinking and start um, uh, thinking of a human being and the human psychology as uh, one species among the others and see the differences and the commonalities which we have in, in other species. And especially to stop the thinking, you know, we and animals, but different animals. Because, you know, the difference between a, a rat or a whale or, um, or a crow could be as, as interesting as the difference between human and rat. And this is something which is very enriching uh, of the, for the psychology students. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes the biologists and ethologists, they have a kind of also contempt about the, you know, humanities, etc. You know, they, they live in history and they are too focused on, on ourselves. But we know that, especially in applied ethology, um, actually lots of the most efficient and interesting methods that we now have in understanding animals came from psychology because they were developed by psychologists who obviously worked for much longer time on human behavior and human psyche than the ethology. So there is a very rich source and uh, on, on both sides and we can really, you know, cross first fertilize it, each other with thinking concepts, methods, and especially with asking questions. And this is something which uh, which really fascinates me. And I hope I am I'm able to, to get mainly this fascination to this thing, not that much of, of, of the knowledge, but the fascination that if you look at the subject from these two different perspectives, you start wonder even more about what it is, how it is about, how it functions, how we understand it. And, and with, the, with the animal ethics course, this is something in, in, in a different code, but, but somehow also, also a similar approach, where obviously with animal ethics, you have some very practical issues, you know, how to, end the, how to handle the animals, how to approach the, the, the question of animal exploitation and, um, and our um, utilization of animals for, for food risk. For, for food, etc., and you have to know the legislation and then the processes. But once more, in order for all this to make sense and for you to be able to make a, an, a personal qualified judgment, it's very important to broaden your, your mind, not only focused on, on the on the problem that 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 is burning for you, which is important for the motivation. But then for the decision making and starting to make uh, to uh, uh, to finding the solutions, it's very uh, very useful that you learn more about the other people, the other you know li lines of thought and approach that address these issues already you know centuries ago or in the last century, etc. So I'm trying to uh, the, the the students that to teach them to understand their own 
like ethical thinking, what I'm basing my judgment, my solution to others, and especially to listen the, to the other side, other people with different opinions, and to listen what, what the animals tells us, and and make your own judgment. But after listening and understanding what what they might uh, think about uh, the same problem. Yes, yes, I think that's. Uh... You know, when we're thinking about addressing a problem, sometimes within our own discipline, we might not be able to find that particular solution. So I think when we launched the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform, and I come from a zoo background and marine mammals, people were asking me, why is it not, you know, practical zoo animal welfare science? And I was like, because... I like this whole idea of, you know, I've worked in research animals, I've worked with companion animals, and there's always so much to learn from other disciplines, not just in the welfare sciences, which is, of course, plural already, uh, but also, indeed, interacting with philosophers or interacting with artists. We On our platform, we also have artists. Um, so we, it's really about, you know, just different ways of knowing, uh, different approaches. So what mm -hmm. you just talked about really resonates uh, with me um, because it's so important to have that open mind and to, to listen and to learn and to consider. Uh, and especially also in this digital age where we tend to kind of, when we look for information, we look online, uh, there's a lot of knowledge in libraries and in people's heads and so on that you cannot find necessarily on the internet. So this whole idea of looking uh, and talking with people, but also looking back to what is not necessarily on the internet, uh, but what is out there is, is such an important endeavor. So thank you for sharing that background. And yeah. you already mentioned you worked with, um, with farm animals. And of course, also now listening to what the animals uh, are saying. So you're talking <laughs> really from the animals perspective. And you have been involved in a lot of different research, uh, particularly also on farm animals. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about your involvement in the Welfare Quality Project. What, for example, what, what was that project about? Yes, so, so of course there is, um, the, um, there is always different shades of, of the research some of the uh, investigation were, you know, rather kind of basic strategic research to really understand the animals, the other were more applied. So let's start with the applied side. So um, um, I, I think I, I was very, uh, very pleased that I could participate in the um, uh, welfare quality project, which was a, a really seminal uh, research project funded by the EU that attempted and in my mind successfully attempted to establish um, a, a practical yet general method how to um, assess welfare um, uh, in especially in, in in farm animals so it set up a kind of standard from which you can develop um, specific protocols for specific animals that then and, and these protocols can be then used for assessing um, the welfare level on particular farms. So 
And, and I think this is a very, very important area of research because we know that each farm is, is different. It depends a lot of how it is handled, how it is managed, not, not only the equipment, the housing, but how really people you know, handle the animals. And therefore, it is important to have a tool to assess the welfare there. And I think this also then encouraged further developments like development of specific congresses that are devoted to assessing farm um, animal welfare at farm at, at farm level because we want to encourage uh, the, the farming community and collaborate with them to enhance um, the quality of life of the animals and therefore the quality of this whole our enterprise of you know living with animals and using animals but giving them also a, 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 at least a decent uh, uh, quality of life. So this was perhaps the most important um, part of the applied research I was um, I was involved in. Um, another is was so-called AVER project, which was um, also a European-wide project, which aimed at spreading the good um, experience and skills that were already developed in in the you know the countries with most developed um, academia etc. Two other um, uh, member countries of the European Union, especially the by then new relatively new members, and and I think we we did this project. Um, inspired a lot of young people in the academia in, in these countries uh, to promote um, animal welfare topics um, in, um, in research and in, in university uh, education especially. It's a gradual process always. You do not achieve something in a year or two, but the important um, element in this are always the individual people, you know, who get excited, who decide to work in this um, in this area, and work on themselves, and thereby helping the next generation of students to getting better knowledge, better orientation, especially better better connection, so that they can be part then in the next generation of the uh, animal of of the uh, scientific community working on animal welfare. Wonderful. Can you explain also a little bit about perhaps some outcomes or some changes that have been made through, you know, this whole exercise of years um, of the AWARE project or the welfare quality? What has that resulted for the animals or on farm level? Well, I, I think the, I have been always only a small, you know, uh, wheel in in the whole process, um, and and I think the most important thing is the general shift in the position of animal welfare in people's mind, in the society, in the discourse, and and also in practical things like how much attention is paid to animal welfare by the, all, all the stakeholders, including you know, the supermarket chains. And, and one of the most important um, 
um, achievement that that I feel um, has been done um, is a really strong dialogue between the farmers and 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 the scientists. Um, obviously, they um, have different approaches and see and understand the best different aspects of of the uh, of the animals on the farm the farmers need to do it really practically um, and need to uh, run it efficiently so that they can survive in the business uh, whereas the scientists need to be very strong about thinking consequently and really funding you know proofs and and principles that that will hold uh, and I think now both of the parties understand the other's position and can really speak very efficiently to each other in formulating question, in finding so in, in finding solutions, um, and and to some extent in implementing them. But of course, for the implementation, you need um, the whole society to be on board, and that that's an, a, a different question where the economic come in and. Basically, it's about then uh, in farm animal science, what is the series is what people buy ultimately, ultimately. Yes, but I think one of the things that, that stood out for me is also, while maybe we don't necessarily see all the changes that we would like, just that process of awareness creation, of putting it more into the spotlight, getting people working together is just one of the you know, base the foundations of changes that are going to take a long time. Of course, the systems that many animals are in have been there for very, very long time. So of course, projects that take five years or 10 years, it will be difficult to, to change that. And it might also need legislative changes. And it also, as you say, you know, needs to be facilitated in the behavior change of, you know, the general public and where what they are willing to pay and, and all the other aspects. So, uh, but so important also to have that component and that, you know, work together where you are maybe not directly immediately being able to make changes for animals, but it, it's needed to do the next steps. And so, and I think that's a good, um, you know, takeaway for any of us really, when we want to affect behavior change in people, it, it really needs that, right? Trust building, relationship building and going, working together. Uh, because also in zoos and aquariums, there's, there's a lot of organizations working together, universities mm -hmm. with facilities. Um, but, you know, we also have a lot of work to do to, you know, how do we work together? How can we make this practical, right? So there's, uh, there's a lot of things there that is really interesting and important. And your research uh, being part, of course, what we'll do is put some links with this podcast. So if you're interested in the Welfare Quality Project or in AWARE, then you can go and learn more about that. And uh, of course, we'll also put a link to your research directly because you have worked a lot on specific projects on pigs and cows and so on. So perhaps, you know, you, one of your projects was about vocal repertoire and communication mm -hmm. of emotions in pigs. So perhaps we can zone in a little bit more on your specific research. Okay. Okay. So, well, 
with, with mammalian vocal communication, there is the, the interesting difference to the, you know, bird singing. Most people would know, you know, singing of birds in the trees and bushes, etc. And um, they have um, quite prominent songs that, that, that there is a tune, it is a specific vocalization, and in other situations they use a different kind of vocalization. In mammals, it tends to be a bit different, so that you it, it's not so easy to distinguish the different types of vocalization. So one basic question we asked in this research was, is the, uh, the vocal repertoire of piglets, we focused on piglets, is it composed of different types of vocalizations or is it a kind of vocal continuum? And in fact, it's a kind of mixed bag because it is a continuum, but you have some clusters that, that, that are like more dense together. So you can distinguish a number of vocalizations, but you will kind, you know, a gray area between them. But what the research in more practical um, uh, sense found or supported was the idea that was there already quite a long um, time ago um, that basically you can distinguish two types of vocalization. That's a low frequency calls and high frequency calls. And um, very, very simply speaking, the high frequency calls are more often used in uh, the situation that induce negative effects in the affective states in the animals. Whereas the, the low frequency vocalization like grunts and so on, um, they are used across all the types of, um, uh, of, um, of vocalizations. And uh, uh, so the, this, this then give, gave incentive um, to um, further research, uh, which now focuses on attempts of um, having an automated system, you know, computer-based system that would be able to record and analyze uh, the signals. An important aspect that we found is that you cannot characterize, make a one one link between a specific type of situation and specific type of call. Rather, in a specific of type of situation, you have a specific mixture in terms of proportion of the different types of calls, which means that you cannot, from hearing or analyzing by computer a single call, you cannot tell what situation the animal was in. But if you record a few minutes of the vocalization and quantify how much of the high frequency calls, low frequency calls are there, or even more subtle differences, you can with quite good um, efficiency decide which situation was it on. So based on just one call, if you want to decide whether the, the, the piglet is in a positive state or in a negative state, based on just one call, you have an efficiency of about 40%. But if you have recorded already 20 calls or more, 
you can decide with more than 90% whether the piglet is in a good situation or in a, in a negative situation. So in that sense, it's like in humans, you know, when you hear the, the human telling, you know, five or more sentences, you are quite, quite sure what mood the, 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 or situation the person is. So this, I think, would be, um, uh, this opens possibility for, for using some automated system for acoustic monitoring in, uh, of welfare in, in pig um, farms. Thank you. Can you explain a little bit for the listeners, you use the word effective state, uh, emotion and mood, um, what, you know, what are, what do they mean? Yeah, well, you know, in 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 humans, um, the psychologists and it has been thinkers since um, you know the antiquity uh, realized that we have very roughly speaking two kinds of mental processes. One is the cognition when we evaluate the information about its content and so on. So, is it green or blue? Is it moving? Is it a cat or is it a, a bird or whatever? And then we have the affective states. That means when we feeling this feeling, it is pleasant, unpleasant, good or bad, which moves us to do something, which of course we, we got from the evolutionary process of natural selection so that we you know, escape or react quickly to dangerous situation and, and you know, approach and enjoy and stay in, in situation that are positive for our survival and reproduction. Uh, well, and in the affective states, you have different kinds of the affective states. Um, first, you have some sensory feelings like pain when you pin pinch yourself or a hunger or nausea or something like that. So these are really um, uh, linked to other internal states. Then we have affective states, which are called emotions in the strict sense. And that these are reaction to important salient events in the environment. So we suddenly see a snake. So we, we you know, have a startle, or we see a pleasant person that we haven't met. So we are, we, we are happy. Or some, suddenly we realize that we didn't, you know, succeed in something so we became really sad so and, and these are emotions these emotions uh, evolutionary speaking have de have developed in order for us or other animals to react quickly and efficiently to the specific situation so they basically focus our cognition what what should i do if i'm start i have to go if i'm meet a nice person i will start talking and, and using the opportunity and as a third category, we have long-term moods, which are not linked to the specific stimulus that we get at the moment, but rather our general feeling of how we are doing, how we are coping. You know, I'm coping well, and I can be bold and invest, you know, investigating and things like that. If I have not succeeded in the last, um, you know, days very much. Then I rather should, you know, um, uh, retract and 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 be very cautious. And all these kind of of emotions are definitely present in 
at least certainly in mammals, probably in birds, quite probably in most of the vertebrates, we are much less sure about uh, other different classes of animals. But at least for the mammals, we know from behavioral evidence, from evidence of their communication, from neurophysiological evidence, that also other kinds of mammals have these bodily sensation like pain and hunger, um, have these emotions, fear, happiness, etc., and have these modes. Moods, so um, being happy or being depressed, etc. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, and so, talking about emotions and moods, you also have written about social dimensions of emotions and yeah. implications for animal welfare. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, um, you know, primarily um, the emotions are internal states. You know, it it is me. Um, who is afraid of something or who is depressed for a long time or who feels the pinch and this, the same as the animals. So in that sense, they are very private. But at the same time, of course, animals do communicate about them. They do perceive it on the other because it was very important for the animals always in the evolution. You realize, you know, this guy, this bird next to me is startled or something. This might be important, so I need to pay attention. So therefore, there is a lot of um, um, uh, communication and perception of the emotions of these other, of the other individuals, and this in turn influences my emotions. Plus, it, it's not only you know a one-to-one -one, like a dyadic process. Many times, it's it's a kind of group process because animals, many animals are social and they behave and move in groups. And in order just for the group to stay together, they basically need to do the same time, the same thing at the same time. If half of the flock leave and the other stays here, then the flock would be split. So therefore, or if, one, if half of the flock startles and the other not, it will behave differently. So therefore, there is a lot of communication, but there is also an interesting link between the synchronization of behavior and animal emotions. And very simply speaking, being able to synchronize with the other individual or with the group feels positive usually, because it means we understand the situation the same, it is clear what we shall do next, etc. So this is an important element, social element, so, social aspect of the of the emotions, and this obviously works in, in farm animals as well because farm animals are social animals. So we need to be aware of the fact that, let's say, the negative emotions of one individual does not affect only this individual, but can affect negatively the other individuals, and vice versa. You know, positive emotions can spread across the group and 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 uh, uh, drive phenomena like social support and things like that. So can make, um, so the social dim dimension of emotion can make the animal's life better or worse in the group. Yes. And some of your work revolves around um, awareness. And I was wondering whether 
you know, the awareness in the sense of being aware of your environment or awareness uh, at a different level. Perhaps you can elaborate a little bit on that, you know, of obviously being aware of your surroundings. Uh, you talk also about environmental challenge and agency. So perhaps uh, you could segue into that. Yeah, obviously it is a very difficult question because as we said, you know, the subjective experience is private to each other. And, and therefore, there is a lot of discussion, you know, how we can investigate it in non-human animals or even in preverbal children, for instance. Um, and, and even what terms to use it. So we have the terms like, you know, um, consciousness, awareness, sentience, and they are partly overlapping, etc. Um, I try to approach that, and I'm not the single, um, you know, um, uh, researcher who did that, but the, the, the life, the, the line of research where I engaged in was uh, based on a evolutionary thinking. So what kind of or what type of awareness is there probably with the animals so that they can behave efficiently and therefore survive and, and, uh, and reproduce? And obviously, as we said, it is important firstly for the animals to uh, perceive, uh, perceive things that are important for their survival, that's the pain, but also their external situation. So the first feeling that probably animals have, at least vertebrates, is the feeling of moving through the environment, you know, um, understanding where I am. So without really understanding like myself as a center of the of the of the world, but perceiving the situation. The next step is when the animals not only reacts to the environment, but also behaves in such a way that it learns something for the future. So it builds its own competence. And this brings an extra level of awareness, I think, because then the animal is somehow aware of its known skills, capacities, etc. You know, basically, am I up to the job or to the, to the next challenge? Which already is not the feeling only in where I am in the environment, but in a sense, you know, how I am. Maybe not yet who I am, but how I am. And then the third level of awareness might be really who I am. So really it's kind of self-consciousness or some philosophers um, call it the autobiographic self so that we understand that we have an individual who has a continuity, etc. And this is much less certain how, how much of that different species have, but there are indications that, that many animals have it because they, for instance, have so kind episodic memory. So they understand what happened to them, where and when, which indicates a kind of continu, con, uh, continuity in their awareness. And they can, for instance, many animals can definitely recognize themselves in, in, in a minute, mirror. So, and they understand the minds of other animals to some extent. So we see from that, 
uh, I think it's most plausible from the evolutionary point of view that animals have diff these different kinds of um, uh, awareness. Uh, we have all three of these levels of them, and probably most mammals have all of them, although the third level may be differently developed uh, and not as developed as, as in us, where we can think these are adult humans of us from the bird to the dead. And, and this is then important, obviously, for the question of how to create conditions for the for a good quality of the animals, because these awareness is an important element of the quality of life, especially if you think it, it, about it in the sense of the potential. So if a species, an animal, have a potential to develop a certain type of capabilities and um, competence. So if we put this animal in an environment that does not allow for the development of this competence, we are a kind of not achieving the full potential in, 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 in her or his life. So therefore, we are limiting the quality of life that the, this animal could achieve, which is an ethical question as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's really important that sometimes the term quality of life has taken a, a life, if you like, on its own, really related to the end of life of animals and decisions. But quality of life, of course, is something that pertains to the animals, you know, all from birth to death. And mm -hmm. you can even mm -hmm. argue, you know, being in the womb and the learning or the experiences that yeah. unborn animals can have. But yeah, so it's important to remember that, um, that because sometimes I know that people, when they hear quality of life, they, they think of a different, of a certain part of the life of animal. Hmm. So, and that is just as important, but obviously for this discussion, we're really talking about the overall uh, life of an animal. And perhaps can you talk a little bit about, you know, when we say agency, um, what does that word mean or what, what does that, you know, in what sense is that, could we say that is the competency, the ability to choose um, what you want to do? You know, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on agency? Well, once more, a very complex and, and dif difficult uh, concept, but basically it, it tries to capture um, the fact that animals are not, you know, boxes with reactions. Of course, they do react if something happens in the outside, but they also do a lot of things on their own when there is no obvious um, stimulus that is causing that specific reaction. So they are doing their behavior from a kind of inner motivation, and, and usually this behavior is, once more evolutionary speaking, um, has the function to build the competence of the animals. So change psychological, physical abilities of the animals in such a way that it has better prospects um, in the future. There are theories about that once more in human psychology, for instance, the uh, the, uh, the, the so-called theory of flow. And this term in this specific term means that you always try to challenge a bit 
your current situation so that you move ahead, you build your competence, you enrich yourself, in a sense. And um, it's quite probable that in certain respect, this, this holds for, for all the animals which have the capabilities of long-term learning and, and, and ontogeny develops more and more, uh, more capacities. Um, so in that sense, we can say that agency is a tool to achieve competence. You know, it's something which we do for ourselves in order to be to be better capable of, of going on with life. Of course, it does not mean that the animals or even the humans reflect on that, way, but they behave in that way. So they actively seek opportunities, etc. Um, so this is the this is the way of thinking that that I have been, you know, writing about together with Francois Wimmersfelder and other um, on on the subject of, of animal. Um, animal agency, but I'm sure it it, it will be a, a, a long development before, if ever, we become clear about what is the animal agency, because it, it's linked to the basic question of you know kind of freedom of choice, which is a you know very hard problem for everybody thinking in humanities and in, in, in natural sciences, going through physics and biology to psychology and philosophy, etc. So this, this is just a small area where we are also, where, where it is obvious that these basic questions which are interdisciplinary are important for such practical things, you know, how we house animals. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes I hear when people write or speak about agency, about, you know, being the author of your life. And this, and of course, you know, some of the um, ideas or concepts or principles into, like you said, you know, how, if we would entertain this to be true until we prove that it isn't, then what does that mean for the practical, like housing or interactions with animals or so on? And I think that's so true for any of the other things that we discussed or, you know, that are out there that we're not necessarily discussing in this podcast is to see, okay, are we even willing to entertain that this might be true for other animals? And if we do this, then um, what does that mean in practicality? And I think that's such an important approach to have. So thank you for, for sharing your thoughts mm -hmm. on that. And you have already mentioned, of course, about emotions and also about um, negative welfare states, but also positive welfare states. And you have a specific uh, paper that is about positive welfare. What does it add to the debate about um, over pig welfare? You can uh, talk a little bit to that topic. Well, I'm just a court in this one paper yes. in a very broad debate. Yes. And, you know, in a sense, um, many people say, now we start talking about positive welfare. This is currently no longer true. It's a debate which is ongoing intensely for at least already uh, 20 years. So I think now it, it's, it's a... Uh, it, it's a um, uh, there is a consensus that, you know, we should look at the positive and the negative aspects of animal welfare or quality life, whatever you call it. Um, I think what is now needed is to um, 
actually understand the differences between the positive and negative aspects of the world. You know, at first glance, it seems that there is a symmetry, that there's something symmetrical. But once more, you know, speaking biologically, evolutionary, it is not. It is not. Um, it, because the negative situation are much more urgent in life than the positive situation. The negative situation, you must react now or you are doomed often, or at least injured or, or something, or down the scale or hierarchy or whatever. Whereas with positive situation, yes, you can stay in it, but there is nothing which is, you know, pressing you to, to react immediately. And this is interesting because, for instance, even in vocalization, you know, the vocalization in, in negative states are quite different than in positive states. So we have, for instance, in a research on the acoustic communication in piglets and the acoustic communication in um, in proverbial children, which I did with a psychologist. Um, and we recorded the vocalization in in different kind of situation, of out of which three were positive and three were negative. And then we asked people to rank for each of these specific vocalization, um, the intensity of the call, you know, how strongly um, the individual expresses uh, itself vocally, and the valence, which means to what extent it is positive and negative. In, the, in, in both these species, in the Kralbehimans and the piglets, it is the same that among the vocalization caused by negative situations, you have an extremely strong correlation between the intensity and the valence. It's almost 0.9. So the stronger is the intensity, the more negative is the valence. Among the cause caused by the positive situation, the correlation is zero. So you can have very positive you know, vocalization, which are very low in intensity and vice versa. So you see that the rules are the different and are the same across the species. So I think what we need to really now understand, I think everybody now accepts that welfare should be also the positive. So we, we should, you know, do more the next step than preaching this, that everybody knows that already and saying, you know, now we are coming with something new, which is quite old. Or old. But really understand what is the different and how it relates to each other. Can we compensate with, you know, a negative situation or negative, uh, as, uh, negative affective state? Can we compensate for it with a positive ne negative uh, state? And one thing that I think is clear from research, but also from common sense, is that it is very different in different species. No, you just cannot generalize because species are very different. You know, just when I compare cattle and pigs, so pigs are, you know, very reactive animals, very active and very reactive animals, always like on the brink of doing something. Whereas cattle are much more, you know, have a much more slower psychological time, I would add, or, or feeling. And so you cannot really compare uh, compare them 
directly. You really need to understand the species very well in order to tell what are the important aspects of um, the positive aspect and negative aspects of life and how important are they. For instance, which type of social um, links and social bonds or social relationship are important uh, for, uh, for the animals. And this is different in different species. Um, so I think what is important is to go into this um, research of differences between species in animal and positive welfare, but also looking into the individual differences of how individual animals perceive the positive and negative um, aspects of life. We know that we are each, each different, you know, just the com comfortable room, te room temperature is very different in different species. But in farm animals, we put the same temperature for the whole group. And the same relates for, in, uh, the same applies for more complex things like social relationship, etc. So I think this, this will be the future, a really important um, area of research is differences between species and then differences between individuals. And how can we accommodate them then in practical terms, let's say in one. Yes, yes, I really, that so resonates. And I think also what is interesting is that of course, also in zoos and aquariums, we could talk about, okay, so these are parameters that could work for polar bears in general, but then we also find, you know, animals out here and out here that don't seem to really, you know, um, be comfortable or be thriving. So, you know, and it's trying to understand. So how at a, at a species or at a group level versus there's clearly some animals that are thriving. So what makes those animals? Is it their their hierarchy or is it their personality or their their you know development that has helped them and all that? And why are some animals really not thriving? So and I think it's especially when we talk about animal welfare, we talk about the individual experience. It's so important to understand um those differences mm -hmm. and uh, and of course cater to the species and the group needs but so much focusing on tailoring our programs mm -hmm. a lot more for the individuals experience yeah. yeah yeah i think i think that actually once more resonates with with something that has been going for the last half a century in in psychology is the psychology of health where people once more understand that some individuals who really have you know very complicated like social background, etc. So really grew up in, in very harsh condition. They are still psychologically healthy. What is it that it builds? It, it is the personality or is it some you know compensating mechanism that makes them resilient and so on. So um, that there are once more possibilities for um, you know collaborating between what we know about humans, what we know about different animals, and how we can can use bo both sides the um, uh, the advances in our knowledge. Yes, absolutely. Because the the discussion around resilience in animals is in the zoo and aquarium community and sanctuary is there still fairly new, but it is um, slowly trickling in. Like what makes you know, it 
an environment, uh, an opportunity for animals to be resilient or what makes a resilient animal and in what way, you know, can animals, if you like, practice resilience? Because, of course, it's like a muscle that can be practiced to a certain extent through activities um, and, as we know, in humans. So is that how can we facilitate that in animals or what makes a good environment? So, yeah, I think it's, a, it's again, really interesting to look at different fields and see how, you know, and what could we use from that. Um, to care better for the animals or provide them with opportunities to do the things for themselves. Uh, and that's a conversation we also have had quite a bit is we are doing a lot for animals that animals could probably do better for themselves. So it's to kind of, you know, detach that, that dependency on, on humans uh, for the things that they want and uh, desire or, or can versus, um, you know, having more semi-autonomous environments where animals can be the operators, yeah. if you like. So that's that. Those are really interesting uh, aspects, I think, to look for ourselves. Yeah, which ties, of course, to what you were talking about regarding agency and so on. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think you know, I would love to move into which you write is one of your most loved topics, uh, which is animal play. Yep. And um, yeah, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about how you came to study or your interests in animal play. Well, I, I, I always like to play. And um, so, well, basically, I, I, I went on a Fulbright scholarship to, to the U.S. to study, at, at, um, to, to stay for half a year at, at two um, uh, U.S. universities, one in Pullman in Washington State and the other in, in Denver in Colorado. And I decided to, to go there specifically to study, uh, to study play behavior. And, well, I think what fascinated me and fascinate other things about play is that we don't know really what it is for, um, which is uh, really like um, something that disturbs a biologist, at least, a, you know, a Darwinian biologist, because animals should be efficient, should have these adaptive traits, etc. Now, nowadays, you know, do these strange things and we don't know why or what it is um, which is by the way, reflected by the fact that most of the categories of behavior are named, labeled by their function. So we have predatory behavior, we have, um, uh, we have um, foraging behavior, we have maternal behavior, we have defensive behavior, and then we have play, which is not in the name what it is for. So this is a fascinating thing. Plus, it is also fascinating in how it looks like. No, it's, it's just strange. It's different than the serious behaviors. And once more, you know, all the other behaviors are serious. And this was something that, that really, you know, like bounced in my mind. You know, what, how does it connect together? And of course, I read uh, the, the papers and books that have been published with it. It, it addressed this, this um, you know, enigmas in, in an interesting way. And, and I, I kind of started to build on that and came to the idea that probably this strange character of the bodily movement in play 
is linked closely to the possible to the possible function. Now, I I think it's important um, uh, for us humans to realize that in animals most of the play is really vigorous bodily play. You know, we have board games and we have video games and we have you know cards and and things like that. But in animals, play is mostly a vigorous bodily play, like small children on, on a playground. You know, they swing and slide, and rotate and run and stumble and do rough and tumble and things like that, hide and seek, whatever. And I think what is really important in, in, in this bodily play of, of animals, especially let's now focus on, you know, mammalian young, young which is most uh, researched um, group of play uh, playful animals. So there are, I think, there have been this definition which, for instance, one by, by Gordon Bullhard, who lists about play, five, you know, attributes. But ultimately, I think there are only, there are two of them who are most, uh, most important, and a third one maybe, uh, connected to them. One is that the body, the movements in the play are deliberately performed in the, in, in the play, during play, in such a way that the animal releases or loses the control of its own, own movement. So normally in serious behavior, all animals strive to control precisely the movement. Because if you con control it precisely, you can achieve e efficiently uh, the, the aim, you can capture the, the, the game, or you can avoid the predator or whatever. Um, and anything that is unpredictable or unexpected is perceived negatively, because this deviates from the plan and makes it less um, probable that you achieve it in, in short time. Not so in play, you know. In play, we have lots of movement which deliberately lose the control. So, for instance, we did a study uh, with my PhD student on the head rotation in Hanuman Mangos. Hanuman Mangos play a lot, and she recorded them in India. And then she analyzed the, 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 the head movements of the monkeys during play. And what we found is that during play, the monkey does all the position of the play with this rotation including position that she never does during serious behavior. You know? And you see it not only in the head movements and rotation, which are very common in animal play, but in the position of the body. So the body, et cetera, the animals you know, fall on their back or typical loose symmetry when you, when you see a calf that is running. So it's kicking the, the heels, the hind legs. But in, in defense, the cow or the, the cattle would kick the length, kick the hind legs symmetrically to the back, you know, to defense. But in play, you do it to, to the side, which is asymmetrical and it's difficult, more difficult to control. So this is one thing that if if you look at how play looks like, it is there is this very strong and omnipresent evidence of losing the, deliberately. The, 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 the control. 
of, of the movement. And the other thing is that animals repeat the play. That means that's very typical for children, for animals. When you start one playing element or something, you repeat it over and over, three, four, five times. You know, you invent the game in a sense or the movement. And you, you do it repeatedly. And these things, the, the repetition indicates that it might be a kind of training because you do it repeatedly. But what kind of training if it is not efficient? And the idea that we brought together in this paper in 2001 with Ruth Newberry and Mark Beckhoff was that, in fact, the animals are not training any specific skills. They are training this for the situation where a mishap occurs. So when I lose the control and something different, maybe the gravity, the slippery and other animals now decides of what will happen next. And this is what they are training, you know, how to lose the control and how to regain it. Because this is in adult life, we think as important uh, uh, as having very efficient routines, because not everything goes according to the plan. And it is important you have the capabilities to handle the situation where it does not go to the plan. When I stumble, I fall down, I you know slip or something like that. The life must go on, the behavior must go on. And the idea is that the basic function of play or the major function of play is training for the unexpected. That means exposing yourself to the situation that not, not yourself, but other elements um, or factors are deciding or co-deciding what will happen with your body and then how to handle it. So this was the basic idea that we developed. Yes, wonderful, which really makes me think about a class I took in university of which at some point we had a discussion on the distant and proximate reasons for play and which really obviously also, you know, really segues into something else that you were writing about the relationship between play behavior and the underlying emotion of fun and animal yeah. welfare, because of course, one thing yeah. is about the distant explanations of why this might happen. And, you know, if you ask most people, actually, obviously people are going to lis listen, but, you know, I have a button here that says, don't forget to play. And I have another one that says first play. Right. And we do it just like you. I like playing because it, it's just fun. Right. Yeah. Do it because it feels good, not because I'm necessarily yeah. practicing for the unexpected. So perhaps you can talk a little bit around that. Yeah. Well, you are right about the so-called ultimate and proximate explanation. You know, um, uh, we do love making uh, because it, it's very pleasant. But the ultimate, uh, you know, reason why it is developed is uh, in in order to procreate children. So, um, and, and the same. This is the classical, you know, Timberginian, uh, you know, asking from the different points of, of view. Um, and one of the psychological, the the the, the the question about the psychological mechanism that is with this emotion of fun is, is very interesting. One interesting aspect is it that the late Jaak Pongsek, one of the really, um, uh, you know, very, um, very prominent neuroscientists, promoted the idea that uh, the feeling, this kind of affective feeling, emotion associated with play is one of the six 
basically neurobiological system that we have for the affective state. So it is very deeply ingrained there. But in terms of you know how it how it works, I think this is another interesting um, aspect that fits into what I have been talking uh, about in my last replay. Because in serious situation where you lose the control or something unpredictable thing, it's perceived negatively, you know, uh, because it disturbs the plan. And normally animals hate unpredictability and hate unexpected things. They react negatively. The thing with play is that it is this, when something happened unexpectedly, how do you know? This is the most fun, you know. When the, uh, when the animals are running around and they sleep, this is the mo- where, where the really the, the laughter, you know, bursts. So I think there is a specific, this is a specific mechanism that, and the only positive, uh, the only psychological mechanism where the loss of control and the unpredictability is perceived as something that makes fun, that, that is perceived positively. And I think because it is so different from the other, other positive feeling, we have a specific motivation to do fun, and therefore we play. And I have even a you know, wider theory that, in fact, in, in humans, then this originally mainly bodily play diversified into very uh, different types of play that are prominent also in our other adult life. And it is possible that, in fact, this module that we have in the brain, that there is a possibility to behave playfully and therefore perceive positively something that is unexpected, does not go to the plan, may be very useful, not only in the bodily movement, but in our social realm, in competition, in development of arts, etc. So, it is possible, though not yet really well like proven, that this mammalian capability of playing and having fun from this loss of control and regain and control is something that during the human development has, has been built as an element into many aspects of our psychology. And this is, of course, something that corresponds to, uh, you know, um, uh, earlier thinking of many thinkers in the beginning of our first half of the 20th century, like uh, Johann Huizinga, etc., Homo Ludens, where he, where he really proposes that, posits that the, um, uh, the play element is present in, in many aspects of, 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 human, uh, of human, uh, human culture. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I have been, um, so Professor Gordon Burgard and myself have done some seminars together and it included play. And uh, I have um, been reading, of course, books and articles around play, also on human play and how environments tend to also kind of set up when they're, you know, the, the design of a ground, uh, playground, how it kind of triggers 
the types of play that you could do there. And, and, and I'm, you know, working with animals mainly. So I'm always looking at, okay, so how is this relevant when we create environments for animals? What mm -hmm. can they do or not do in there uh, when things are fixed or flexible or space or, you know, so it's, it's really fascinating. So I, I really love that we have time to talk about play and, um, you talked a lot about fun and, and positive aspects of play. And you've, of course, also talked about, um, you know, the potential of negative aspects to go through a group. And uh, could you talk about negative play contagion in calves that you wrote about? Well, this is just, uh, this is an interpretation of a surprising um, finding that um, uh, PhD students, um, uh, Verena Grosbacher from the Vienna University, um, uh, she perform, performed um, the, uh, the data gathering in, in our institute in, in Prague. Um, we collaborated with uh, with uh, Professor Winkler and uh, from Vienna and uh, Alistair Lawrence from, uh, from Edinburgh. And the, the aim of this experiment was to find, uh, uh, was to examine the positive <laughs> contagion of play. So uh, we, knew, we know that calf play, um, even if they are not in a very good um, you know, state, bodily state, but still the amount of play is reduced when the conditions are worse. So for instance, if the animals, if the calves are fed less milk, that is their ad libitum intake, they will reduce the amount of play. So what we did in, in this um, uh, experiment that we have some groups of animals, uh, triads of animals that have lower milk intake, that have high milk intake, with the expectation that uh, the former group will play less and the latter will play more. But then we have a mixed group of, of, of cows, where two of the three cows had a high milk intake and the third one had a lower milk intake. And we were interested whether the calf on a low milk, milk intake will increase its play due to the more, two more playful calf companion. But surprisingly, we found the opposite, that in fact, those calves who uh, were getting enough milk and therefore were play, should be playing a lot, actually reduced the play a bit when they were housed in a calf on a lower milk intake, which played, played less. So this, you know, in order to interpret this, we label this negative play contagion, but it's quite a new finding and we don't know how general it is. But in principle, is it positive? It is, it is possible. It, it, uh, it would be one example of what we have spoken about uh, before. That means that you can have the contagion of positive emotion and the contagion of, of, uh, of uh, negative and, uh, emotions. Yes, it makes me think almost about kind of a sort of helping, a sort of compassion in the sense of understanding your state and kind of, you know, going out there now, mm -hmm. uh, which may be a little bit too much of an interpretation, but it's kind of like I 
uh, I see that you are, or I feel, or however that they interpret it, mm -hmm. that you are in a different state than I am. And therefore it's like handicapping or something, not in that sense, but it, it's, it's very interesting that you found that. That's, that's mm -hmm. like you say, you don't know necessarily where or yeah. what, but um, it reminds me of some of other examples that, uh, that we hear in the animal um domain of other animals that they are adapting their behavior to to others in a different state yeah that's mm -hmm. very interesting perhaps you can share we're almost coming to the end of the podcast a few other examples of play in animals uh, perhaps a story you know you want to share or maybe even some of the comparative work you've done um, of animals other animals and and human children yes well, I, 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 I might share a personal story and, uh, from my own life. Um, when I was 11, it was the uh, year 1968. And by that time, you know, Czechoslovakia was in the communist bloc and it was quite heavily controlled. But specifically during this, that year, there was so-called Prague, Prague Spring. So, you know, it was... The, the, the regime was loosening a bit, and for the first time in 20 years, people were able to travel across Europe. So we gathered a, a group of families with children and went to Italy by train, because by the time very few of us had all the parents had cars. And when we returned back on the train through to Vienna, this was on the same day when the you know, Soviet army came and occupied Czechoslovakia to break this attempt to, to loosen the, uh, the regime. And of course, all the parents were extremely frustrated and crying, etc., because it was not clear what will, um, what will um, happen and whether we will be able to go back and whether the people will be prosecuted or whatever. And we were all, all stuck on Vienna railway station because the trains to Czechoslovakia were not continuing, etc. And I remember how the parents were really frustrating. Right? But there, there in Vienna station, that was the escalator. It was the first time in my life when we children saw the escalator. And we were running up and down the escalator like crazy because it was such an intensive incentive for a play. Of course, we were sorry for the parents, but still the play was the most important thing. So I think this, and, and you see, you know, the pictures of, of children in the, you know, uh, camps for refugees or children during the flooding in Cambodia. They are playing, they are still playing. So that experience really supports um, my persuasion that play is in fact very resilient and, and important. And the, each single inch of space that we give to play for the animals helps a lot, not only at this moment, but I think for the whole life. Absolutely. And it's also your message really drives home, you know, in what way can we show up when we are maybe a, a little stressed or a little worried, you know, in what way can we activate ourselves or can we, you know, shift into a play mode to maybe help us, you know, deal with a difficult 
um, situation. Sometimes, you know, we know people suddenly start laughing when they're very, very nervous. And so, but in what way can we, we can see lots of articles also really stimulating adults to play as well uh, as it is just as important Mm -hmm. for us to play uh, in various ways, whether it's bodily or mentally, as you mentioned um, in our lives. Yes. And how can we create those environments for animals uh, to play more? Absolutely. Thank you so much, yeah. uh, Marek, yeah. for coming on to this podcast and sharing your research, your teachings, your ideas uh, on uh, animal affective states, on, you know, really listening to animals, not just the sounds they make, but also what they're trying to tell us through their behavior and other ways and being able to make changes for animals, including providing opportunities for play. So thanks again so much for coming on to the podcast. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And Pause is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a pause member today.